You are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Mike Melito. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, starting in verse 13, uh, David is, uh, it, we're, we're seeing the effects of a passive man in everything that's happening in David's life right now. He's been passive every step of the way. He, he has not been a man of action. He's not been a man in motion here. He's not been somebody who's taking on um, proactive uh, approach to what's happening in his family. Uh, his, his, his one son raped his other daughter. His other son Uh, didn't see Dave do anything about that, so he killed the other son. It's a mess. And now what we've seen today and what we've come up to is now Absalom, the son who who, uh, saw him do nothing about the other son, is rising in the ranks and gaining power and influence. And just to to recall, uh, last week when we were talking about Absalom, I shared with you, and I want to remind you, that I've struggled with um, sometimes how quickly people are to write Absalom off as this villain. And, uh, and, and you're gonna, we're going to see here in the next couple of weeks how much of a villain he is really becoming. But um, at first, it just all seems so justifiable to me. Absalom's sister is, is raped. David does nothing about it. This makes him mad. I get that. He goes to commit justice on the guy who did it. I get that. He, he gets um, just ostracized by his father for killing the son, even though his father didn't do anything about the other one. And that makes him upset. I get that. He comes back. He, his dad won't look at him. He gets upset. He burns somebody's field to try to get attention. And, and all of this built up to last week where now he's saying, you know what, my dad's not doing anything. I'm gonna go sit at the city gate and as people come out who have similar problems to me, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna say, man, if only I were in charge, I could take care of that for you. And even there, as slimy as that looks, it, and it does, in, it just, I, I just feel like if we're being honest, we could say he probably felt justified in doing that because somebody's gotta do something about this stuff, right? So, you know, I struggle with it, and yet when we come to see what he becomes, we understand that. And remember, we've been reading what I call the origin story of a villain. And, it, and I struggle with that because I'm like, God, I really don't feel like I'm supposed to relate so well to somebody like Absalom. <laughs> I really don't feel like I am. And again, God's word is, is like a mirror, and sometimes we don't like what we see. And you're like, Pastor Mike, are you like Absalom? I said, I think we're all a little bit like Absalom. I think we're all a little bit like Saul. I think we're all a little bit like these characters. And you will get more out of your Bible if when you read it, you put yourself in different characters' shoes and, and, and be honest with yourself. And, and that way you could read the same story over and over again and get something different out of it. And in this case, this time around, I'm going, man, Absalom, I get it. But what is different about Absalom from David, because David, remember, even though he's been passive, is called a a man after God's heart. When David was suffering all the injustices that he suffered from Saul, David never took matters into his own hands. He 
his whole attitude was, I won't touch God's anointed. If God wants to do something about it, God will do something about it. Uh, God will be the one that puts me in that place if that happens. And, and he even had opportunities, and everybody else thought he should take those opportunities, and he didn't. Absalom's the complete opposite. And at the core, the reason why someone can say, I'm going to let God do that, is because they trust and believe God is good, and God is God. And even though they don't understand things the way God does, they're trusting God is good. That's at the core of their being. If a person is taking, constantly taking matters into his own hands, like Absalom is, you have to start to question whether, do, do you believe God has anything to say about any of these things? Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God will do something? Do you believe God is just? Because if you do, then maybe you need to offer some space for God to work. Because God would, not, would like not only for there to be justice for Tamar, but he would also like to restore, he would also like to restore David and Absalom's relationship and their family. See, God's bigger than we think. Absalom's thinking, I want justice no matter what it costs. God's thinking, I want justice and I want restoration. And I can do both if you'll let me. If you'll let me. And so Absalom's not, he, he's not there. And we're seeing a little window into that. And when I say I struggle to, because I identify with Absalom, that to me, that's where the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on my chest saying, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm good? Do you trust that I'm just? Well, yeah, Lord, you know I do. Well, then stop aligning yourself with Absalom. <laughs> right? So I'm just opening that window into my soul, hopefully so you can see a little bit about how you can get something out of these things. And even, you know, even when you're tempted and you read something like this and for a minute you think you relate to Absalom, but you know that's the wrong answer so you don't even entertain it. Just get real with Scripture, right? Get real. Uh, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But he became, Absalom became a master politician Say what you want about politics, but Absalom did just a live illustration of what expert politicians do. He sat at the gate. He says, look, all these things, all these bad things that are happening to you, they're his fault. If I were in charge, I could cure all these ills. Just, you know, we, we really need a change in leadership. And so he was, he was politicking, uh, so to speak, and he was creating victim. He was creating victims. He was creating victim mentality and then usurping authority. And Satan works that way too. We talked about all that last week. You can go back and listen. Today we're going to go to verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13 through 37, and we're going to see kind of where we left off. Absalom was, was gathering people to Hebron, and, and, the, and he, it says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's where we left off. 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. Then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. We're going to stop you right there. Don't worry, we're not going to stop every verse like that. Can we stop right there? The hearts are with Absalom. Remember this, they are stolen hearts. Here's the real unfortunate thing. The hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom under false pretense. They just didn't know it yet. Remember, he stood out the, the gates. He was promising all these things that he could or could not do. 
Absalom had a victim mentality. He created a victim mentality. And now he is exploiting those victims that he created. And their hearts were with them. And we've got to take time to remember that because one of the scriptures, one of the verses last week said that these men were going to Absalom innocently. Like they didn't have malice in their heart. They believed good things. They were going into this innocently. Their hearts were being stolen. They didn't know what was happening. And we have to understand that because this happens all the time today. Leaders do this. They create victims and exploit those same people to gain money, influence, and power. And at some point, these people they're exploiting end up realizing those those leaders were never actually going to follow through on those ambiguous promises, and in many ways, the victims end up in worse situations than before, driving them deeper into victimhood, right? And we've, we've, got to, we've got to see this in Scripture so we can identify it today because it's a disaster. And when this happens today, the ultimate usurper and victim maker, Satan, will exploit all that's left to destroy all so he can hurt Jesus. Absalom wanted to hurt David. He was, he was, he hated David at this point. Satan wants to hurt Jesus. He hates Jesus. And do you realize, do you realize, have you ever thought about this? Satan's whole game to destroy you is not just for sport to destroy you, but the purpose of destroying you is to hurt God's heart. God's heart hurts when he sees our lives destroyed. Satan knows he's going down, and he's going to take as many people down with him to make it hurt for Jesus. And that's, by the way, that's what vengeance will do to a person. Vengeance has turned Absalom into a monster, a devil-like monster who will destroy many lives in his wake. And David knew this. David came to understand this. Verse 14, David said to all the servants with, with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee, or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly, or he will overtake us quickly. Heap disaster on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servants said to the king, whatever my lord the king decides, we are your servants. Then the king set out, and his entire household followed him, but he left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace. Now, why did he leave behind ten concubines? You know, maybe he didn't like those concubines. I don't know, right? You guys can stay. Good luck, right? No, he left them behind to take care of the house because he knew he was coming back. If he was coming back, why was he leaving to begin with? Remember, he's in Jerusalem. And, and all the way back before they had Jerusalem, when he had to take Jerusalem, we talked about how well fortified Jerusalem was and how it could, it could last for a long time under siege because of its water supply. And they had to crawl up this water duct to try to get into the city. And David knew this. So why was he even leaving to begin with? Right? He could for sure fend off Absalom. So why? It's because he, what he says here, he will heap disaster on us. David real, is realizing what this family feud is causing for the whole nation of Israel. And he didn't want Jerusalem, he didn't want the city and the people that he loved to suffer in the crosshairs of his passivity. 
It was as though this man who had been so passive up to this point has now finally begun to wake up. He's taking action. It's kind of refreshing to see. Wish we would have seen it sooner, right? Because this wouldn't be happening. And if there's any lesson to learn here, we, human beings, men, women, and I will, just because I'm a man and I, I, could, I could relate, I will say men, especially, we need to reject passivity. You don't want to wake up one day and realize things have gotten to where they are because you've done nothing. David had done so good until he screwed things up with Bathsheba and exchanged for one night of indulgence, he gave up his authority and his voice, his will to act, and the result was what we're seeing. And today, we see, and we're going to see more, that, uh, that, the, that the things that David didn't do, the things that Samuel told David was going to happen, are going to happen These are consequences. You see, but I thought Jesus, you know, for you, we, we, we have consequences for our sin. Like, there's a cost for our sin. There is a price to pay for our sin. And you say, I thought Jesus paid the price for my sin. Oh, he did. He paid the ultimate price so that we don't spend an eternity apart from him in hell. But there still is a cost in this life. Remember, David was forgiven. God forgave his sin. But here David is paying the price in his lifetime for his sin. There's a price to pay. I say that as a warning and as a, hey, if you're walking through it, listen, just because you're having to pay that price for sin, those consequences aren't forever if your life is in Jesus. Right? There's, a, a, again, another movie. I was going to play the clip, but I, I couldn't do that today. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Has anyone seen that movie? Loosely based on the Odyssey by Homer. But it's, there's three convicts. They escape prison so they could find this treasure trove of money that one of them said that they had. And they're, they're out, live, you know, they're living off the land. They're just, they don't have anything, and they're trying to get to this place where the treasure is, and they're in the... In the, in the woods, eating gophers or whatever they can find. And, and one day, they are walking and they start hearing a choir talking about going down to the river to pray and get baptized. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? And they just, all of a sudden, these people are walking past them and they just, their eyes are just real big and they're looking around and what's going on. And they walk down to this creek or this river and they all go in and the, the preacher starts baptizing people. And Pete and Delmar... They're two of the guys. They're so drawn to this. They hop in the river, they cut in line, and they get baptized. And they're just thrilled. Delmar gets out there, he's like, the preacher said this done washed away all my sins. No, neither God nor man has anything on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. <laughs> yeah. And he forgave even that pickly wiggly that I knocked over in Yazook. And, and the other guy says... You said you didn't do that. He's like, well, that was a lie, and he forgave me for that too. <laughs> and they're talking about now how this, set, this, this absolves them from the law, like of the land in Mississippi. 
And they're arguing with Ulysses, who's this intellectual guy on the, on the, the group of people, right? And, the, and they're saying, there, there were witnesses. They, they saw us get baptized, so we're good. And there's this, this famous quote. He kind of says to bring them back down to earth, and it's funny, but this is what I'm saying. He said, he said Delmar's like, but they saw me. There's witnesses. I can go to court now, and I can be set free because God forgave me, and there's stuff. And he goes, this is not the issue, Delmar. Even if that did put you square with the Lord, the state of Mississippi is a little more hard-nosed. <laughs> and that was a real downer for him. But there's still consequences, right? I'm thrilled for Pete and Delmar. That's awesome. Because they, they, even after they heard that, they're like, well, you ought to got baptized with us too. It at least would have gotten rid of the smell of your pomade. You know? So, so even when we're forgiven of our sins... And we could be enthusiastic about that. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Just know that there's a price to pay for your sin. So if you're tempted to use God's grace as an excuse for sin, you better think again. Because even if it's true, well, God will forgive me. He will, but there's still a, cost, a price to pay. But if that is your attitude, then I have to tell you, I'm not sure you're saved. Well, God will forgive me. That's not how grace works. Grace is not an excuse for sin. It's a springboard to, into righteousness. It's an inspiration not to sin anymore. And we've got to come back to a place, and this is going back to David. He had a sin of what we call commission. He committed a sin with Bathsheba. And then after that, he has all these sins of omission. He omits things, he, things he doesn't do. He's being passive, and we need to um, reject that. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Commission, the things we do that we shouldn't do. Omission, the things that we don't do that we should do. And there's a price to pay for both. Men, let's not be like Adam, whose first sin, Adam and Eve, Adam's first sin was not eating the fruit. His first sin was a sin of omission. He did nothing when Eve was being tempted. He sat there passive and did nothing. That was his first sin. Now, there might be some theologians that want to argue with me about that, but I'm telling you, that's a sin of omission right there. He should have stepped up and said something. I wish he would have. <laughs> right? Oh, what suffering families and kids and society endures because of passive men. Don't let the sins of commission lead to sins of omission like David. The cross of Christ makes those sins an opportunity for God's grace to shine through. It's not a scarlet letter that makes us irrelevant forever. Those are opportunities for God's grace to, to, to shine through our lives when we're open and honest about our sin. Amen. David's price was his family and the people of the nation he loved. He was leaving Israel to spare lives. He knew he would be back. He knew he'd be back. And in that way, he's like the shadow king. He's a shadow of things to come. The king of kings who ascended into heaven, left behind his church, and knows that he's coming back. Verse 17. So the king set out, and all the people followed him, they stopped at the last house while all his servants marched past him. Then all the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the people of Gath, 600 men, came with him from there, march, marched past the king. 
The king said to Ittai the Gath, of Gath, why are you also going with us? Go back and stay with the new king since you're both a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. Besides, you only arrived yesterday. Should I make you wander around with us today while I go wherever I can? Go back, take your brothers with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But in response, Ittai, Ittai vowed to the king, As the Lord lives, my Lord the king lives. Wherever my Lord the king is, whether it means life or death, your servant will be there. March on, David replied to Ittai. So Ittai of Gath marched past with all his men and the descendants who were with him. Uh, sometimes when you read scripture, uh, you have to notice what's not there. And there's a list of people that are going with him. And, and it's the Cherethites, Pelethites, people of Gath, and this guy, Ittai from Gath. Um, you don't hear a bunch of Israelites going with him. The foreigners are being more loyal to David than his own son and his own nation, right? When, when David became king, he came into his own people. They said, you're our flesh and blood. You know, you can, it was just a very tender moment and, and now they're, they're just completely rejecting him. Completely rejecting him. And only the foreigners, the people who weren't really technically part of his kingdom, we're going with him. And, and you've, you've got to take a minute to notice what's not there for, for one major reason. Again, shadow king, shadow of the king of kings. The New Testament describes Jesus as fully God and fully human who came to his own people, Israel. But his own people rejected him. And he tells a parable about a king in a similar situation so that the king sends messages once he's rejected by his own people. He sends messages to the highways and the buying saying, whosoever will come can be my people. They can come to my party. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, whosoever will come will be given the right to be called children of God. So what we're seeing here is, is a shadow of things to come and it's Quite remarkable, really, when you think about how much the people were with him at one point, and now they're not, and now it's just foreigners going with him, and he receives them. We even have this guy, Itai, who's like, and he's like, you've been here a day, dude. Go, what, what are you doing? And Itai's like, no, as the Lord lives. Some of you in your Bibles, that word Lord is all capitals. And when, when you see the word Lord in all capitals, typically, especially in the Old Testament, it's the word that was originally used there, Yahweh, which is the highest name there is for God. And so when he's saying Lord, and it's all capitals, he's saying Yahweh. He's invoking the highest name for God there is, this, Gath, this person from Gath. He's saying Yahweh, as long as Yahweh lives... By my life or death, I'm with you. His own son trying to kill him, and this new acquaintance, acquaintance at best, is pledging his life to David. March on, David says. Everyone in the countryside was weeping loudly while all the people were marching out of the city. As the king was crossing the Kidron Valley, all the people were marching past on the road that leads to the wilderness. Zadok was also there, and all the Levites with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set the Ark of God down, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until the people had finished marching past. 
Then the king instructed Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor with the Lord, he will bring me back and allow me to see both it and its dwelling place. However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He could do with me whatever he pleases. David is remembering a lesson from the past here. A while ago, we read about a battle between Israel and the Philistines. And Israel thought, we're going to bring the ark of God with us into the battle. It'll help us win. And if you remember that story, it's, it's been part of this series. They don't win the battle. And the Philistines get the ark. And then it causes all the Philistines to get hemorrhoids, which is hilarious. <laughs> and they're like, take it back. <laughs> take it back. We don't want it anymore. Literally, literally, actually hemorrhoids. So, <laughs> but he remembers this because he, he, he doesn't want to treat the ark of God like a lucky charm like they were treating the ark of God. And he's leaving his fate to God. And this, is, this demonstrates for us great faith, again, in the goodness and the justice of God and humility for the place he has before God. And it gets us back to something about David, why he's called a man after God's own heart. Again, this is refreshing to see. Guy's an epic failure when it comes to his family. Epic failure. It didn't have to be that way. God didn't want it that way. It was that way. But when it comes to his approach to God, it's a model for us. He not only trusts God, he trusts God is good, and whatever God lets happen is the right thing because God is just. He doesn't need a good luck charm. He's less concerned with victory over Absalom and more concerned with what God wanted to do with him. And we should be less concerned about getting ahead in this world and more concerned about what God wants to do with us. Yes, we should fear God, revere his place, and know our own, but we need not be afraid of what God wants to do with us. He has great purposes for you, purposes that will give you life and an eternal impact and meaning. If you can become less concerned with what you can get in this world, who you can beat, the Joneses you can keep up with, the vengeance that you want, and be more concerned with what he wants for you, that's liberating. It, it'll set you free when you embrace that principle. And it unlocks the purposes of God in your life. Listen, the purposes of God in your life are not to make you rich, happy, any of those things. You might be those things, and that's not wrong either, but whatever he allows you to have, there's a reason for it. But it's not about that. It's about him. Right? And, and you know, people... We, we come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons, and he receives us for all, for all those things. You know, it might be tragedy in our life. It might be a deep need we have. It might, we might be a deep in trouble financially. We might be in, in, in a mess in our family. All those things should, and they do, drive us to Jesus. He uses those situations to pull us closer to him. And he will work in those situations when we yield to him. But that's not his primary goal in your life to make your life better and easy and to fix your problems. His primary goal in your life is to make you like Jesus and give you an eternal impact. And that's not always easy, and that causes different kinds of problems. 
And we've got to understand that. But if we can come to a place like David and say, you know what? Uh, <laughs> if, if God finds, if I find favor with the Lord, good. If he <laughs> does not find delight in me, then he can do what he wants with me. He's God, I'm not. But I'm here to tell you, he does delight in you. He does love you. And that's not an excuse to sin. That's a reason to run to him. Verse 27. The king also said to the priest Zadok, Look, return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaaz and Abiathar's son Jonathan. Remember that I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes to you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark to Jerusalem and stayed there. So David's planning informants now, okay? And he knows they won't be harmed. Verse 30, David was climbing uh, the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered, and he was walking barefoot. All of the people with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they ascended. Then someone reported to David, Ahithophel, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Lord, David pleaded, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's a good prayer to remember. <laughs> right? Please turn the prayer of the counsel of that person into foolishness. Ahithophel had been a trusted advisor to David, and he was a very smart advisor. But this, this was big news. That's why they brought it to him, and it's devastating news. But I mentioned this at the very end last week. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And Bathsheba is the woman who David had an affair with, had her husband killed, and did all those things. And that's her grandfather. And he was strategically chosen by Absalom to become part of his plan because why? Of course Ahithophel had it out for David. Right? Verse 32. When David came to the summit where he used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go away with me, You'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and tell Absalom, I will be your servant, your majesty. Previously, I was your father's servant, but now I will be your servant. Then you can counteract Ahithophel's counsel for me. Won't the priest Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Report everything you hear from the palace to the priest Zadok and Abiathar. Take note. Their two sons are there with them, Zadok's son Ahimaaz and Abiathar's son Jonathan. Send them to tell me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's personal advisor, entered Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering the city. So he is setting up some things here. Just like I said all along, his plan was to return. He was trying to do it in a way that limited the collateral damage. But it says here... Um, Hushai, David's personal advisor. Some of your versions more adequately translate Hushai, David's friend. David's friend. When tragedy strikes, when you've been in sin and it gets uncovered and there's shame and, and there's fallout, when you mess up real bad and the consequences are real bad, you do find out who your friends are. Right? And David is finding out who his friends are. Yes, there's a cost to our sin. 
But can I just talk to the church right now? It's not our job as a church to become a sinner's antagonist. It's our job as a church to be a friend, to help bear the burden, the cost of sin. Not to comfort somebody in their sin, no, 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 no. But to be there for one another when things happen, to restore one another. I, I want, one, one thing I want as a pastor is for you to know when you're in the thick of it and you messed up, you have great friends at the church. I want that here. And if, that's, if you're mistaking your role to be like the Holy Spirit, you're the convictor of sin and you're going to point, um, listen, God's got to change your heart right now or that's, that's just not okay. We're not going to have that. Right? Galatians chapter 6, talking to the church. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, this is, you, you think you're spiritual? You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you're not also tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. David's finding out who his real friends are. We find out who our real friends are. And we, church, need to be that real friend. Why? Because Jesus is our friend. Right? When you sin, when you're in the pit, and you find out who your real friends are, you should know the most real friend you will ever have in moments like those and ever is Jesus. When you realize you're stuck in sin, a pattern of sin, sins that are bringing harm to you and the ones you love, you are never in more need of Jesus as your friend as you are at that moment. And if you get anything I ever tell you, ever, you need to remember, and this sounds like a cliche, but you need to remember this. You have a friend in Jesus when it all falls apart, even when it's your fault. I can't raise my kids to be perfect. I mean, I know they're perfect little angels, right? But I can't raise them to be perfect. And when they fail, it's disappointing. But my goal in life isn't so much that to make them perfect. It's to make sure they know who to run to when they are confronted with their sin and imperfection. So that when they do mess up, because they will, because they're human beings, and they do have a price to pay, because they will, because we all do, they know that they can run to Jesus. I can't pastor the church. You and me, we're the church, not this building, right? We can't, I can't pastor a church so that you're all perfect people, or I'm perfect. And I'm not pastoring the church because I'm perfect. Because I'm not perfect. And those of you who know me well, know that very well. Right? I can't do that. I can't, I can't be the one telling you. And, and, and this is so popular these days. People are, oh, you're just perfect the way you are. Yeah, pastor, why don't you ever encourage me like that? You're just perfect the way you are. Because you're not. You're not perfect the way you are. I'm not perfect the way I am. But that's not, I'm not here to tell you you're perfect. I'm not here because I'm perfect. I'm here to say only Jesus is perfect. And we need to be a church that consistently and constantly runs to Jesus together when we sin and tell people about the friend they have in Jesus and then model what it looks like to go to Jesus. 
David was finding out who his friends are. When Jesus went to the cross, at that moment at least, he was finding out who his friends were. And it looked like nobody. They scattered. They scattered. Maybe Mary Magdalene, maybe. But this is what makes Jesus perfect. When he had no friends, he remained a friend. When you're not a friend, he's still your friend. The, the Bible actually says when we're enemies of God, he's our friend. You might have stopped being friends with Jesus. He never stopped being your friend. And you might be in the thick of it. You might actually still be living in secret sin. And he wants to be your friend, a perfect friend for the imperfect you. And he did pay the ultimate price for your sin. And he does want to restore you here on earth. And he even wants to use those consequences to redeem and restore you. And he can still use you if you've sinned. And we have this, this character in the story, Ittai from Gath, who only knew David for like a day. And he says, as the Lord lives, Yahweh, I'm with you. And David received him. And we need to be, we need to be, some of you might need to, need to come to that point for the first time today or the first time in a long time. But really, we need to come to that point every day. Jesus, as the Lord lives, as God our Father lives, and the Holy Spirit's inside me, I'm with you. We need to be less worried about whether he's with us. He's there. He wants to be. Are we with him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a friend. You're our closest friend. We think of close friends, uh, uh, people who know us the most and still hang out with us. Well, you know us better than our, we know ourselves. You know us better than our closest friend. And you still let, laid your life down for us. You still pursue us. You still work to, to break down our defenses so that we can have you in our lives. You're the best friend, Jesus. And so I pray this morning, if anyone, they're in the thick of it. Particularly if anyone's dealing with the consequences of their own choices. They would know you're here not to condemn them, but to be their friend. And would take the position of Ittai and say, as the Lord lives, I'm with you, Jesus. With your eyes closed for a minute. Jesus wants to be your friend. Are you being friends with Jesus? He's the most real friend you can have. David, it's easy to look here thousands of years ago at, some, uh, at a man's life and be very judgmental. Gosh, David, you really screwed up, whatever else. But we gotta be real now and just say, hey, I'm no different. And if David can find out who his friends are, I can find out who my friends are. And Jesus is my friend. You say, Pastor, I need to go to my friend Jesus. I haven't. I haven't spent time with him. You might come to church every week. That doesn't mean you're going to your friend Jesus. 
I'm not Jesus. You're like, duh, Pastor, we all know that. <laughs> but, but today you say, I need, to, I need to go to my friend. That's me, Pastor. Will you pray for me? Would you just lift a hand? If that's you. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Maybe you haven't really looked at him as a friend. Maybe in your mind he's been kind of maybe condemning or maybe just put out with you, annoyed with you, tired of your antics. And that's not it. That's not true. So yeah, Pastor, I've kind of looked at him that way. And it doesn't feel good. And today you're just relieved to know and you want to you just be able to feel that in your heart. Like he's my friend. You say, Pastor, that's me. Will you pray for me? Yeah, already some hands. I, I, I go through that sometimes. I feel, I get annoyed with myself, so how can God not be annoyed with me? But he's my friend. Let's stand together. Stand with me if you would. We're gonna spend some time with our friend. And as we sing this song, I'm, I just, uh, we had such a powerful time of prayer up front on Wednesday. I'm gonna do the same thing I did Wednesday. I'm just gonna come up here and kneel and worship and have a time with the Lord. I would like to invite you to do the same. He's your friend. He's your best friend. He's here and he's worthy. And he took his life and laid it down on the cross so that we can have this time with him. Jesus, meet with us here, we pray. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for being our friend. And we thank you that even when we sin, you're still our friend. And we come to you now this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.